everyone. It's the Life of Jam Live video podcast. This is season three, episode seven of season three. Today, we have a really big treat. This episode is called Writing Your Music Filled Life. I have Lori Markbart here. Give us a wave. Author of the amazing memoir, Somewhere in the Music, All Find Me. Oh, it's so good. I'm going to read her bio and then bring her in. She's going to give us a little read and then we'll get into the interview. Lori Markbart is a published author, poet, songwriter, professional singer, and musician. Her beautiful memoir called Somewhere in the Music, All Find Me, is currently available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and to order through any indie bookstore. It just came out, um, I believe, last year. And um, she thrives through life with general anxiety disorder and is a social media advocate for positive mental health awareness. Everyone knows that's my shtick too. I love that. She is also a recent breast cancer survivor and is very open and talks about that openly. She's Midwest born, which we'll talk about, but lives in Los Angeles with her son, her two gatos, her cats, and a fish named Bob. It sounds like a movie. Find her at www.loriemarkvart.com. The link is in the comments. Welcome. And I'm going to unmute you. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you, Jeff, so much. This has been long. <laughs> We've been so waiting long. months for this. So I'm going to put the camera on you if you'd like to read us a short piece so people can hear your voice. Absolutely. I'd love to read. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to do it. Okay. Spectacles, though. Just okay. to make sure I don't fuck up my own words because that could possibly happen. <laughs> Camera's on you. No, and you can't. I can't memorize this whole book on my own, right? So, um, okay. This is uh, chapter thirty-eight in my book. I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of a download of what's happening in the book prior to this chapter because I think it kind of helps. Um, at this point in my life, in my memoir, I am. I just left Austin, Texas, where I was doing the bulk of my music career. I did Minneapolis and Austin, and then I moved to L.A. because I was recently married. And I was finding it really hard to find bands, and I was getting really frustrated. Um, but I was having a problem finding day jobs. And one of the day jobs I found was at um, KNBC, which is the NBC affiliate here in Los Angeles, which I'm sure you know all about. Um, and one of the perks of working at KNBC is I would directly deal with The Tonight Show with Jay Leno at the time. And I would carry beta tapes down to The Tonight Show and those had commercials on them. So every time I would go down to The Tonight Show, I could actually watch that night's band, the guest band, rehearse. So as a musician, that was gold. It was like I got to see every band from Depeche Mode to U2 to No Doubt, um, all these bands just being themselves. Mary J. Blige rehearsing, um, Dave Navarro rehearsing, and pretty much all of them were amazingly awesome, cool people. So um, that's kind of leading up to this chapter and what then is happening in my life. Keeping in mind again that I was quite frustrated because at the time I wasn't playing music anymore. Um, I was struggling to not only find a band, but more than anything, I was settling into the comfort and predictability of just being married and 32 years old at the time. I was like, oh, this is what you do now. You know, you get married. You let go of the dream, I guess. So here we go. Chapter 38, Purple Velvet. 
There was nothing extraordinary about the Thursday morning in early May 2001 when I arrived at KNBC for work, except for when I read Prince on The Tonight Show guest list. I set down my coffee and bolted to The Tonight Show loading dock. It was only 9.30 a.m., but maybe Prince already was on set. However, it was quiet. I went back to my desk and couldn't finish my coffee. Butterflies were in my tummy. I stared at my computer screen as if I understood the broadcast schedule data, but it was garbled to my dazed eyes. I was mesmerized by the idea of meeting Prince in person, except for the fact that I was dressed corporate and bland, you know, like black slacks, beige button-up blouse, black high heels, but nothing sassy or sexy about them. And if I had known he would be a guest, I would have dressed a tad splashier and way sexier. But why would Prince even notice me? Did I think that if I told him I had lived in Minneapolis and I'm a musician, maybe he'd care? He'd even give a shit? Wait, I'm not really a musician anymore. Or am I? Can I give it up and take it up again? I called my mom, huge Prince fan, and announced Prince would soon be in the building. She wailed and screamed and demanded every detail once I got it. A little before 1 p.m., I went to the set early, hoping to catch Prince walking in. I hustled down to the show security guard, who usually let me pass without question. He stopped me. No glory, not today. Talent has requested a closed set. No one is going in. I stood motionless. Oh my God, I should have brought beta tapes with me as an excuse. Thinking of my options and how to persuade him, he shook his head like he could read my mind. Fine, I said. I'll just watch him on the feed. And I walked away. Mm, nope, it's going to be blacked out. You won't see a thing, Terry stated. Come on, really? I blurted out thinking, he's probably just fooling with me. Really? He nodded arched his eyebrows and stuck his hands in his pockets and casually leaned against the wall. I wasn't a threat, but he wasn't going to let me in. I walked away defeated. In the main hall, I paused and I leaned against a tall stack of equipment outside the big wood stage doors, the, the back to the tonight set. I was plotting another way to get in. Unexpectedly, the loud clanging of drums, keyboards, and guitars roared from inside the Tonight Show set. I was so taken by the sound, recognizing it was Prince, that I didn't realize until I looked down that I was leaning against his music equipment cases. Each black piece had his symbol spray painted on the exterior. Miraculously, one guitar case was open, lying flat, and the guitar was gone. It had to be Prince's. Or if not, it was someone in NPG. Oh, side note, author side note, NPG, for those who didn't know, that stood at the time for New Power Generation. That was Prince's band at the time. Okay, back to the book. This was close enough, if it was one of their guitars. But it probably was Prince. And I had to touch it. I felt like a kid eyeing up a shiny new toy. So I made sure no one was looking. No one was nearby, and I walked up to the guitar case. 
and I gently ran my left hand fingers along the inside of it, following the shape of the guitar cutout. I was tingling. The case was lined with plush purple velvet. Not the synthetic shit, the real deal. It felt like soft butter. And for a second, I was transported to Minneapolis in 1986 when I was 19 years old, holding my first guitar, the one I left in the pawn shop in Minneapolis. I remember the smell of my guitar and the case, but then the clamor of Prince's most recent song played inside the Tonight Show set and it returned me to 2001 and this NBC corridor and the realization that this was the closest I would get to Prince and my original dream in Minneapolis of being a rock star. My lunch hour was over. I returned to my dreaded work cubicle prison, I'd like to call it, on the sales floor where civilian people were talking about broadcast avails, rate cards, and programming. That night, I watched Prince on The Tonight Show at home, like ordinary people. Reminiscently, I looked at my fingers on my left hand that had touched the inside of Prince's case and realized then that my fingertip calluses from no guitar playing were gone. Mm. Oh, I love it so much. I'm so happy you read that story, you know, because when Prince died and uh, when Bowie died, uh, that same era, I have another Bowie doll, but I'll, I'll leave Ziggy in the corner. Um, and I just remember how devastated we all were that loved Prince, the way you loved Prince, the way I loved Prince. It was like our gods were dying, right? Yeah. And yep. and Prince was so young when he passed away. And this scene, what I love about it, and you and I were talking about this, this book is um, a literary memoir, I would say, with a, with a very strong musical component. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, you know, your whole life, but it does have a coming-of-age uh, story in it and stuff about your mom and stuff. And that's what I love about it. It's so beautifully written. And the way that you bring up um, this guitar, touching Prince's guitar, flashing back to when you sold that guitar at the pawn shop. I mean, it's very uh, resonant. Like, there's all these, like themes throughout your book of loss, mm -hmm. of grief, of chasing a dream unfulfilled. And then you keep on coming back to it like a touchstone. And so thank you for reading that very beautiful story. I really appreciated that. You're um, welcome. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're a good reader too. I love <laughs> that. It's that performing side of you, I think. So talk to me about how this memoir process began. You're a singer, a musician. You were on the road for many years in Minneapolis, home of the replacements and Prince and Husker Du, like you talk about in the book. And um, you were started out in the Minneapolis, then transitioned to the Austin music scene and then kind of got domesticated, had, you know, a son. And, and so what, what precipitated the book? What? How did you get here? And I have a very loud Siamese cat who keeps entering. <laughs> Good, bring him in. She wants to be on camera, but as soon as I pick her up, then she'll scratch me. How did this start? It, um, from a young age, I was a writer of poems, of course, that which is poetry. And then I was also becoming a musician quite young, 
you know, around the first time I was singing in church, I think I was seven or eight years old and then piano by nine to 10 years old. But I always had this wanting to get something out of me. So I was always writing poetry. And then, of course, eventually the poetry, you know, coupled with music and then it, was, it became songs. But my first poem was published when I was, I believe, 14. Wow. And the title of it is called My Love for You. It sounds so... <laughs> Like a dramatic soap opera title. Um, so I knew that there was a writer in me, but I didn't know. I I never thought there'd be a book um, until I went to audition for X Factor here in Los Angeles. And that's where the book starts off. And um, after that audition, there was something in me that was just like, I want to tell a story about this. There was something I, I didn't even know at the time what it really was. It was just there. I have to I have to write this story. And so I started writing and the story was mostly about the audition process for that show or all of those shows, because I even did an audition for America's Got Talent. Um, I, I would have in which I talk about in the book, I would have even probably auditioned for X. No, I'm sorry. Um, American Idol. American Idol, if I could have. But they had an age cap. You know? Oh, back then it was younger. Yeah. Yeah. That really pissed me off, too, because I'm like, really? But anyway, after I got done with the audition in L.A., I thought, I just I need to write this book about this. And I, so I didn't really know, but I started to write. And my first draft of the book was basically, um, I had a completely different title. It was called The Two-Day Audition, and it was all about ah. Or I think, actually, then I changed it to The Weekend Audition. And then I didn't quite know what to do with the book. I didn't really understand my purpose. Um, and then my mom became ill with uh, COPD. So this would have been around 2013 or 14, a couple of years after the X-Factor audition. And so my attention went to her. And um, she actually is the one who said to me, finish that damn book. Because I kept telling her, I'm wow. still working on the book and I don't know what's going on. And she was like, well, you need to finish it no matter what it's about. Like, finish it. So she passed away in 2016. Sorry. And that thing. Yeah. Losing parents. Yeah. Socks. Uh, but her, her marching orders to me, literally on her deathbed, as I have in the back of the book, was she was like, I actually say in the book, she said, finish that damn, that damn book. She actually said to me, finish that fucking book. <laughs> really hardcore cussle. And I was like, okay. So that's when I started to get back into the book. And that, is where it really took off because she became a big part of the story. And oh, and she's a big part of the story. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to say that Felicia and uh, Marinella, Felicia, who I went to high school with, uh, punk rock girl, Felicia said, just picked up Pop Life on a 45 original sleeve. Oh, um, she, she's a no. huge record collector. Um, mm -hmm. And she said, uh, yeah. And she's, she said, your story is really cool. Big fan here. She's a huge Prince fan like we are. Um, yeah. So like you said, the book starts and we're going to get to the mom stuff, but the book starts when you're auditioning for the X Factor. Flashes back to you as a young girl in Waterloo, Wisconsin during the 1970s. From a craft perspective, you do a really nice job of setting place and time. Very mm -hmm. masterful at that. Um, and I just wondered, you know, um, so the, the book started as short, a short or novella maybe about your X Factor audition or some essays about that. How did you decide then to start with the X Factor and then flash back to your childhood? 
I had variations of the book in the process. And I had three editors I worked with through the process of the book. The final editor um, was really, he was a big impact on helping me shape that together. Mm -hmm. And there was one time the book actually started linear, like literally it didn't start with X Factor. It started with me as a child and just went, you know, boom, 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 boom. And, and I just, yeah. I, I was actually at a writer's retreat in Boston, Situate Harbor, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. And I was really inspired at that retreat because there were some writers there who were mentors and they really helped me as well, like set that initial scene. Like what really is the one thing that, that really got you? And so that's, so I decided to start there with X Factor because that's where it all started. It, it yeah. to start the book really, but it obviously is not the reason behind the book. But it is in my musical career something that was very impactful. Going to that audition, spending a weekend trying to get on this damn TV show. Really- yeah, and from a craft perspective, it's a really um, kind of, I mean. Wild did this. I did it in my book. I start with my dad's death, flashback to childhood, kind of trying to reconcile and remember things. You start in the X Factor edition, flashback to your childhood, and you start when you're very young, growing up in Wisconsin, kind of in this one horse town. You don't have a lot of, like, you dream of going to New York City. And your dad was a classical musical fan, classic music fan. Your mom was into Johnny Mathis and kind of Carol King. Um, But you and I have this affinity for the 1970s and 1980s, post-punk, pre-punk, proto-punk, Chrissy Hine, Blondie, Joan Jett. The You talk about the Runaways. You talk about all these different bands, Queen, The Police. What made you love rock music as a kid? And when you wrote this book, did you know that you were going to be able to weave in the pop culture and music of the times? Because you do a really good job of it. And not. And I think it's because you're a musician. Um, you have this scene of your first concert, which is a Rush concert. And I, I read a lot of memoir. And very few people can capture the energy. I've seen it done in performances. But I, I, I read a lot of books and I, I have not seen a concert where someone actually captures for music people the euphoria of a concert. God, right? Right. I feel like I'm on, I'm on speed. I'm young. I'm 12 years old again. I'm just this kid that's in love with the yep. world. I mean, what, I, how did you do that? Did you just free write it? Like, what's your process? Well, for that, I, well, I can touch on what got me to rock and roll, though, too, okay. was my dad being a big part of this book is, is him being a big a classical music fan. So that was put into me at a very young age. Um, and my mom obviously had her seventies music and she loved Broadway and she musical theater. Um, but her father was also a very well-known singer. My grandfather mm-hmm. in the West and had an extraordinary, beautiful voice, but he was also a severe alcoholic and that deeply impacted my mother's upbringing and her idea of who should do, who should go into music or who shouldn't, she really wanted me to go into music from a very mm-hmm. young age, both my brother and I. Um, but there was also this caution. Like they almost, the family assumed with music comes alcoholism or mental illness of some kind. And it wasn't just my grandfather. Many of my family members, incredibly well-trained musicians, but everybody kind of had a little something, you know, that was uh, negative there, but uh, mentally. Um, 
Yeah. Not all of them. But because it kind of sometimes, too, I think creatives go hand in hand with a little bit of eccentricness and so forth. But what got me to rock and roll is I had this classical music, my grandfather's voice, my mother's interest kind of, you know, you're fucking me all the time. So when it came to me finding freedom, and plus I was learning classical music on piano, singing Jesus Loves Me in Church. And I remember thinking, not even thinking, I just... I got exposed to early rock and roll. I think Queen was one of the first bands oh. that really in Warner. I'm trying to think of some other bands, but there was other ones in the 70s. As soon as I started to hear that music, heart, I was like, I love my mom yeah. Dad. Oh, heart. Yeah. I was like, God, I was like, Mom, Dad, I need to start. I, I, I need to listen to rock and roll. But that concert is what changed everything because till to this day, it gets me excited. Going down to get down in front of that huge stage, you know, and everything's all black, right? Back in the seven, this would have been the seventies. You know, people are smoking cigarettes, smoking weed. You can't smoke cigarettes anymore. You can't smoke in it. Well, you know, some people vape, but you can't smoke anymore. This is like beer cans, cigarettes, all of it. And I'm beer on the floor, like smell of yeah, all of it was just a mess. But I was like, whoa, this is so cool. But the minute they came out, the text to start testing the equipment. And it's Rush, the band Rush, right? Rush and Rush. And I'm like, that's Neil Peart's drum kit. <laughs> and back in the 70s, there was no YouTube. There was no freaking internet. We had- <laughs> no no cell phones, thank God. Thank God, right? God, right? Yeah. It was just all the radio. And really MTV had not even come on play yet. There was like American Bandstand. You could see bands play, but... You just visually couldn't see a lot. So when I saw his kit, his drum kit, and as soon as it, as the, te- the guy hit that bass kick, I, and it went, boom, I'm like, oh, I'm in. That was all it took. I was just so excited. I was like, this is rock and roll. So that's how I painted that scene because I really, I clearly remember the sight, the smell, the feel. I remember beer being, being poured <laughs> on. I remember <laughs> You know, flown all around in a crazy crowd. But most importantly, I remember when the lights went down and that whole arena just went wild. Wild. And that made me go, I have to do this. Something about it. I was just like, I have to do this. I gotta be on a stage like those guys. So that became but it also it, I needed to get out of my family strife because I was in a yeah. home with an alcoholic mother, a bipolar mother, um, a good solid father, but they were not always getting along. I mean, whenever you're in a home with a, a mentally ill person, it's going to cause chaos. And so I was not only a young teenager trying to find my own thing, like all teenage, teenagers do, eventually go, hey, fuck you, mom and dad. I want to do what I want to do. But I also, I needed an out. I was in a town of 2,000 people. Like we were yeah. saying, there was no internet, no connection outside of your friends at school. And like, what's what's the hot album to buy on vinyl this week? I think 8-Track was still around. Yeah, <laughs> no, 8-Track was around when I was young because I had Grease on 8-Track. My dad's car had an 8-Track, yeah. Gotta love 8-Track. I mean, it's uh, just, yeah. Little, so, I mean, that's kind of, I had a thirst because I needed to escape. Yeah. And that made me then go, I not only want to escape by listening, I became addicted to recreating the music I was hearing. 
because yeah. I knew I could maybe go somewhere with it. And so that's how I got into rock and roll. And then, and then when I saw women like Hart, oh my God, or Bonnie Raitt, um, like we were talking about, and then the runaways, but some of the uh. women who were just, they were outside of the bound, like they colored outside of the, the wall yeah. or the, the square, right? I was just like, fuck, these chicks are really doing what they want to do. And they don't give a shit. They're not even trying to stay within a, as much as I loved Carol King and her songwriting, I loved all of those songwriters. Tony Mitchell and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, these women were rock and roll. So that got me. They were punk rock, rock and roll, like masculine in a way. Don't jet with her guitar and her leather pants. And I just want to point out, thank you, Mary Pat Becker, for being here. Um, her first concert was Van Halen. <laughs> People put your first concert in the comments. Mine was Loretta Lynn at the Pomona Fair. I was six. My daddy took me. Oh it was God. right when Coal Miner's daughter came out. So it was huge because um, she was she played every you know pretty much the soundtrack from coal miner's daughter which is one of my favorite probably top 10 biopic musician movies of all time uh, other than and buddy holly passed, and the, huh last she just passed last year didn't she she did she did and she did a lot of stuff with jack white and stuff and i really loved her till the very end she really kept it fresh you know um and yeah. i love old country so my dad got me into that but i didn't like it when i was young i always said I'm a rocker. That country is for hillbillies and truckers like you, daddy. And then, really quick story, he came to visit me when I was in college at UCR. And I was playing um, Lucinda Williams, her uh, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road album, which is, to me, another top 10 country album that I just love. And my dad was like, I thought you didn't like country. I'm like, this isn't country. He's like, yes, it is. And it is. It's rock country, but it's country. Because Lucinda Williams is like one of the badass bitches of country. I mean, and she's had some health issues too, and she still keeps playing. She's just such a badass. She is, and Um, she total like you're saying, though, a total different edge to country. Um, Kind of got a flair of blues in it. She was um, when I was in Austin, Texas, for those ten years. I idolized her then too, because she was all over Austin, you know. But uh, anyway, go ahead to your. I think you were. You're just telling me a story about your dad. Yeah, so I just thought that was funny that, you know, I thought I wasn't listening to country, and I was. I really want to transition into talking about um, an issue, which is we talked about a little earlier, is a huge part of your memoir. Your mom's very severe mental illness, which escalates, and her drinking. It's a big part of your chaotic childhood. I know what that's like. I grew up in a house with an alcoholic, and my mom had some issues. You have a lot in the book um, about it. How hard was it, because there's a lot of writers who watch this live and then later, how hard was it to write your way through these trauma-filled memories as a young kid, and then later having to write and be open about your own mental health struggles, diagnosis with anxiety and all that? Because it's very interesting, because as a young girl, you're clearly afraid to drink or use anything, and then obviously the rock-style life, it's kind of, it's part of it. So, So how did you feel about being open and honest? both about your addiction struggles and then later about your mental illness struggles. Well, and I have both issues too. So, you know, there's no judgment here. I, I really believe well, in reducing the stigma. And, and that's a big part of me contributing this to the book is reducing the stigma. I think the number of, is like one in five Americans will suffer some form of mental illness yeah. and then one in 25 severe mental illness. So, I mean, I talked to this stuff, to, the importance of it because we need to break down that stigma because totally. 
you know, people were were humans with these these bodies that need care, not just a foot or a lung, or but our brain, you know. And when I was growing up, there was a huge town. It was like because at the time, my mother and her family were like, we don't talk about this. Everyone keeps the alcoholism, especially my grandfather keeps that quiet. We don't talk about my mother's behavior. If she's gone, not missing, but when she was hospitalized multiple times, um, it just wasn't spoke about. It makes me mm-hmm. just emotional because that was a negative thing. It was, you know, it implied to the community that there was something wrong. Yeah. And that that's not normal because no one. And that you had to hide it, right? I don't want to talk about it. No. And, um, but then, like I say in the book, it, it got to the point where we couldn't hide my mother's behavior anymore because she was also as a, as bipolar. And if people don't understand it or know for sure, people can swing through being severely depressed to severe. Uh, I don't want to say severely, but very high and very manic. So when my mother was not medicated, she was one of the two. So if she was depressed, she was severely depressed, MIA in her bedroom, okay. she was feeling really good. She was kind of on top of the world. And that was also noticeable. But when she was medicated, wow. it evened her out. So eventually people got it. People started to see that my mom, in a way, was unstable. Um, yeah. I think some people would eventually call her, you know, she's a, uh, well, some would just straight up so crazy or she's that Marianne. You know, there's something really off with her, that kind of stuff. Um, she's a loose cannon, you know. Mm-hmm. She's um, hysterical. Back then, that was the nomenclature culture for how you talked about women with mental illness was hysteria, take a Valium, you know, take a sedative. It wasn't about treat the illness, treat the, treat the trauma, treat whatever it is. And I mean, back then we're talking the seventies, the there wasn't a lot of treatment for mental illness, both for adults and for children, pretty much none for uh, young adults, but even no. for older adults, there wasn't, a, there was the institution but who wants just that option, right? There were not a lot of clinics you could go to. Can you imagine how many people were put into institutions that didn't need to be there? Mm-hmm. And this yeah. pre-Asperger's, pre-other yeah. um, levels of, that's not a mental illness, but it's just, it's- Yeah, it's a cognition know. disorder. It's related, right? Yeah, neurocog, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, just think that these people, you know, a lot of people I think, and my mom also was considered eccentric in her actions, but I also want to put the disclaimer out that my mother was also an incredibly loving, generous, beautifully, uh, God, I'm trying to think of some other like ways to describe her. If you were loved by her or had her attention, you were lucky. She was just so generous and funny, so fucking funny. So, um, and that's what I love about your book, you know, much like Glass Castle, much like I, how I try to do in my book. It's all about the love, and it's also about being realistic and being open and honest about everyone's struggles. And that reduces the stigma, right? I was very um, torn about whether I wanted to create a Mexican stereotype of an angry Mexican woman of my mother. And in the end, I just went with the story. And I think you just went with the story. And I felt the love for your mom. I mean, you show the good, bad, and the ugly, but you also show a lot of the good and a lot of the love. Your mom is there for you throughout your whole life. She never gives up on you. I mean, I'm getting choked up because your mom 
kind of like how my dad showed me by owning a bar that I could achieve my dreams. He would always tell me, Jenny, you can do anything. And your mom would tell you that you can do it and that you needed your music and that you didn't need to be using and all that. Oh, my God. Yeah, my mom was my biggest supporter, biggest fan. Yeah, for sure. More than anyone in the book. Oh, yeah. Um, But when it came to my own mental admitting what I would say to mental illness, um, anxiety and depression when I had postpartum depression, but I also. Oh, that, had, uh, that story got me. I've had miscarriage. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's, it's real. This really happens yeah. to us. Not like it's just in our head or every month when women have their menstrual cycle. Oh, it's just in your head. Like there's literal chemical, chemical changes in our body, you know? And, yeah. Um, but the first time I experienced depression in my twenties, I was scared because I didn't want to tell my mom or I didn't want to admit to it. Cause still in the nineties, there was a stigma. Oh yeah. Nineties. We started to lose so many musicians to mental illness and it became like, wow, we need to talk about this more. And we need to talk about the vulnerability of not just musicians, but our culture that people need help and they shouldn't be shamed into having to stay home or become reclusive because they're afraid of their anxiety or they're afraid to go out. Um, so, well, and now with COVID, right, we've had such a resurgence and I, I'm a mental health lawyer in public defense and our caseloads have doubled the rate of mental illness in the jail right now is I would argue about 75%. And that, can you imagine, and they've done studies and 40% of all people who are mm-hmm. charged with the crime that have mental illness are overcharged because of the fear of the mentally ill. They're overcharged and they end up in these state hospitals for up to two years with no good time. And um, I like what you said about the institutions in the seventies and then they kind of shut them down and they're bringing them back. And I'm kind of torn either way, but do you remember one flew over the cuckoo's nest? I mean, that was one of the biggest movies of the 1970s with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito. And it talked a lot about malingering and all that, but malingering is very rare. Very few people ever would exaggerate or for effect mental illness. No one wants that stigma or that cross to bear. And I don't believe there should be a stigma. Um, later on in the book, though, um, you moved to, so a lot of this book is also for those music lovers out there. I know a lot of you watch Alan Kalichi, Felicia, other people I know that are watching that love music. A lot of it is about you on the road chasing your dream of becoming a rock star. Yeah. It's interesting because you want to move to New York City. You decide at your parents urging to stay in Minneapolis, to move to Minneapolis, which is closer. And that yeah. music scene was on fire. The replacements, one of my favorite bands of all time. Hustle Prince. Do, Prince. Prince yeah. Looking back as you were writing the book, did you ever think what if you had moved to New York, what would have happened? I kept on thinking that like, because there's, you know, your aunt's there. She has, she gets you an agent eventually. She's, a play uh, actor. She's an actress. And so I keep on thinking, I want, I mean, would your life have been any different? Does it really matter? I don't know. But I just kept on thinking, isn't that interesting? Your dream deferred, but then you keep on chasing your dream. You never give up on your dream. You move back to San Antonio and then you go to Austin and you get into the musical theater scene. Then you're rocking out. So, I mean, talk about that idea of chasing the dream. Like your dream is to be a rock star and you're a beautiful singer. I've listened to, you know, your, your album that you have on your page. I've listened to, seen some of your, you, you have such a strong, like Janis Joplin, raspy, hard rock metal voice. 
Thank, thank you. Love I, your writing I, voice and your uh, singing voice. They're both beautiful. Thank you. That means a lot because it's like my voice is my first instrument, really. And guitar and then piano and give me an instrument like, you know, I'll play it. I'll try. But what would happen if I had not gone to Minneapolis and to New York? I, of course, I've always wondered, you know, I got in a lot of trouble, obviously, in Minneapolis and then on the road. I, I was so young. Um, I would have still gone to New York. Probably still found a band. Maybe had been playing CBGB. I don't know. Or yeah, um, Kansas, Max's Kansas City. I don't know. So what would I have done? I don't know. But I ended up going to New York multiple times anyway. Later in the book, yeah. you know, musical theater and Broadway, and I still. To this day, I'm like, I still want to be a rock star. I'd still love to live in New York. It's like, we'll never go away. But what never stopped me is just the beauty of music. I love to yeah. create music. And um, whether it's going to be heard by anyone or if it's going to be in a studio and get recorded, who knows? I just, that's one of the things that came to, at the end, at the end of the, I'm holding it up like we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> when it comes to the end of the book, it's, it's just, all about bringing me joy, bringing me freedom, bringing me, um, I want to say definition of my own character of just who I am. Um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer three years ago and I've gone through multiple surgeries and I couldn't play my guitar, couldn't play anything. I was just really weak. Those are the times when I went, you know what? Thank God. It's just my boobs. <laughs> like not my voice thank god someday i'll be able to play again and it brought it all back around how important it is to me to be a musician whether to be heard or not it brings me joy like these are, are in my piano like if i could sleep with my guitar probably. <laughs> I, I would love to hear you play something right now i know we're going to do this at the end but do you mind playing right now and then we'll get back to the interview i think it'd be really cool for after you talk about your love of these guitars and music and your passion for singing, um, I'm going to put it, the camera just on you. I'm on me. Well, and also going back to what that chapter I just read about pawning a guitar in Minneapolis, every musician I know at some point has pawned their equipment because it's, it's so hard, especially when you're young and you're kind of that starving artist. And you don't want to be a starving artist, but you're like, shit, I need to make some money or I need, you know, but yeah, I left a guitar back in Minneapolis that to this day, I'm like, oh, it was my first acoustic guitar. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I'll play, um, this is one of my originals. I'll just play like a medley uh, quick of some of my songs. Um, Yeah. 
give you some, give you some in return. Give me all the strength I need. That was my song, um, Give Me All. You, and my songs, if you guys, you can look them up online. They're all there. Let's see, I'm gonna do one now called Time Again. Time and time again, you gave good reason. Time and time again, I wasn't sure. So many ways I understand you, and so many ways I can't be sure. Lonely and worried of what's to come of me, not as worried for you. You breathe life into so many parts, I swear you'll never undo. Austin, Texas, but this is Faith. especially your upper register is so beautiful. And then I definitely hear the heart influence. Oh my God. Ann Wilson. Mm -hmm. One of the songs that I, one of the first songs I learned when I was touring with 
the cover band in Minneapolis that I was on the road with for quite a while um, was Barracuda. Oh, my! that was my son. Barracuda. I remember being like, damn, she was just so good. And her sister, Nancy, of course, had a huge influence on me as um, a guitarist. I was just right. like, shit, shit. I mean, yeah, so... And let's do a quick giveaway. So one of your favorite musicians mentioned in the book, uh, we talked about Joan Jett and the Runaways, but also uh, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. And so for a free book, and um, then you're just going to message me your address and lawyer will sign and send it to you or send you the book. Um, Here's a trivia question, and I'll put it in the comments. Who? You're going to make this a little easier than I was first. So Chrissy Hine lived in England, if people don't know, during the pre-punk era and in the punk era and in the uh, post-punk era. What band did she almost marry the bassist Sid Vicious of? So Chrissy Hind was trying to get a visa. Then she was trying to get citizenship. So she almost married the bassist for which band? And that bassist name is Sid Vicious. So put that in the comments and the first person who types that in will win a free copy of this epic memoir. It's beautiful. Thank you for saying epic. That's that's rad. And I just like to personalize it. Yeah. Um, Chrissy Hind. Um, I got to tell you a little quick story. I had absolute luck to almost meet her at a music festival back in 2019, I think it was. It was the Arroyo Festival here in Pasadena, California. And um, what was so funny? Oh, we have a winner. Hold on. I don't want to interrupt you. Alan Kalachi. Woo! He's a musician for a band called Refrigerator. Um, and that. yeah, you got to you gotta meet Alan. He's a librarian as well. He's a rocker and a librarian, you guys, and a writer. He has uh, a number of books out, one about his heart transplant. And um, you have to meet Alan. You two would totally connect. I know you would love each other. So good job, Alan. I'll get your address and we'll get it. Um, you out. But finish your story about Chrissy Hine. Well, so that day um, I was lucky enough that my boyfriend at the time, um, <laughs> he he knew how to get not just backstage passes, but all the way backstage. He, he used to be in the music industry. So we were back, you know, beyond, beyond. As in, we're sitting there and I'm meeting Alanis Morissette and I'm meeting all these artists that I'm just like, because they're like, if you're back here and you're this deep, you must be safe. You're not some weirdo, right? <laughs> so Chrissy Hine comes off stage and she's coming around. And my boyfriend at the time was like, here she comes. And I'm like, because he actually knew the bass player. So um, I was like, oh, my God. I'm starting to do the reach out. And she looks up. She goes, I got to go to the bathroom. And she like brushed me off. I remember she had like red pleather pants on and just she's sweaty everything I get from being on stage and I love but I was like ladies gotta take a pee so <laughs> she went into her trailer to take a pee and she never came back out oh. <laughs> and my my boyfriend at the time was like do you want to stay Should we, what, what do you want to do and I'm like well I don't want to be that kind of weirdo like we're back yeah. let's just hang out and we'll see if she comes out later plus we were just to having a good time. And I didn't, you know, so that was as close as I got to her is her looking at me and going, I got to go pee. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I think it's a better story. You know, I, I have, I almost, I've met my idols, John Doe. I sat next to a bar with him. Couldn't talk to him until I got drunk and then got him to sign my book. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 
uh, Tommy Stinson from The Replacements, not the lead singer, Paul Westerberg, but Tommy Stinson was in the band. He played Pappy and Harriet's. He was just outside smoking cigarettes afterwards, and we're all out there smoking. I was too nervous to go up to him. I think there's something about meeting your idols that can be traumatized. I kind of like the almost meet stories because sometimes they let you down. Sometimes they don't. But that kind of almost meet that she had to take a piss and then she's like, eh, give me a minute. I got to go pee and then never comes out. That's kind of a cool story. And she, I'm sure she must have come out too at some point, obviously. And I, by that point, had moved on and um, (laughs) I don't think she was dodging me or anyone. She just was like, I got to go take a pee. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God! Actually, that day, Lucas Nelson from oh, Promise wow. Willie's son was there with Promise of the Real. Funny thing is, we were talking to him, and he he kept saying to my ex boyfriend at the time, "You look so familiar to me. You look so familiar." And my ex was like, "No, my ex is English, but he used to tour bands, so he was like, he probably know me from maybe summer, maybe not. I don't think so." And I kept saying. I'm from Austin. I lived in Austin in a music scene for 10 years. I, I played shows with your sister, Paula. And Lucas just kind of was, he'd look at me like, whatever. And then he'd look at my ex-boyfriend. He's like, I know you. The moment there too, all of a sudden Lucas goes, I got to take a piss. And he just walked away. And I'm like, that was before Chrissy Hine came out. That was a long, beautiful day. But I'm with you. When you get to meet people and it's not so structured, you know, and, and yeah. I recognize too, I was very lucky that day to be in that setting um, you know, so it, they, they trusted us, you know, yeah. and being a musician, I kind of knew what to maybe talk to them about and not, you know, I met so many. Yeah, artists. not fangirl over them yeah. because that's never, um, like with writing, you know, I, I met David Sedaris and embarrassed myself and I was like, Santa land. And he's like, okay, then. And just did a little candy cane. I was like, oh my God, I didn't tell him how much he like his book, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, is why I started writing memoir along with Angel's Ashes. But I think there's something better when you meet someone and you may not even know. I met Michelle Gonzalez from Spitboy, a great punk band, but she's also a well-known writer. And we became friends because I didn't know who she was. Like, yeah. I wasn't into 90s punk as much. And um, so I think that sometimes when you meet someone and you don't have that um, sheen of like almost hysteria, right? Oh. Uh, when you're meeting them, that it's better because then you're just one of them and they trust you and they don't have to feel like embarrassed that you're fanning all over them, you know? And also have, being a musician, having yeah. played big stages and small stages and having to take a piss too. <laughs> and I've had people come up to me too where I'm like, give me a minute. I have, I just understood where she was and understood where most of those musicians were that day, especially when you come off stage. And like I talk about in the book, you're high, like not high off a drug, but just stimulated and excited and just, whoa. And so most people, I usually back in those days when I was playing hard rock metal, when you mentioned Janis Joplin and that stuff, I was in a metal band in Texas and four years of just like kicking ass on metal music. Um, I would come off stage and I would get raging headaches and it was like the the adrenaline job just went. So um, to this day, I still kind of get even a little hopped up even before a smaller show, you know? Oh wait, I see this too. I hug John Lennon's lover, Mary Pang and Petruder after party. Oh, Oh, I was so (laughs) jealous that you were at that Cindy, you know, I, me and my twins, I have my twin sister, Jackie lives in Palm Springs. And um, I've always been a John Lennon fan. She's always been a Paul fan. We're twins. So I picked John. She picked Paul. And when uh, Paul played Pappy and Harriet's in Indio, um, 
She was one of the 300 that got in. She was at the front of the stage to watch Paul's whole concert. But I was so jealous. Cindy, Cindy Nessinger is a writer. Um, she's working on a memoir. And then she also wrote a beautiful little children's book about a mouse at the Mission Inn that was beautifully illustrated. Mm. Um, so hi, Cindy. Thanks for watching. Um, and I, I like all this stuff about, you know, meeting your idols. What? So tell me this. Like, um, was there anyone you met that did let you down? You were on these big stages, these festivals and stuff. Did you ever meet anyone that you're just like, they were a <laughs> What a dick. Yeah. Um, no. Oh, that's good. I know, right? Because I also have worked in the entertainment industry for a long time, which I talk about in the book, you know, and I, I still do. I mean, um, you were so lucky you got to see Depeche Mode and all these bands while you were on The Tonight Show working um, backstage. Yeah. I couldn't believe it, all the bands you got to see live. Okay, there there was one band there, and that's where I shouldn't even talk about this because I don't want to. I don't. I really don't want. There was one band, one singer that was not happy that we were all there, and actually asked if we could leave the studio. In the oh, meeting, wow. she was like, "Who are these people? Why are they here?" And there was like only four or five of us. Of course, now you want me to say who it is, but I don't want to because um, I'm not. That's wanting, okay. this, this isn't an expose book, but no, no. general generally and genuinely have were were awesome. Um, yeah. I, but there was a couple of times in my career where I was just like, um, am I actually playing this show? Like, am I going to play open for this band? You know, things like that where I'm like, this is kind of really cool. But then music takes over and then it's just like, I'm a yeah. musician. My favorite bands are the ones, like I said, like Tommy Stinson sitting at like, um, yeah. and then when we, when we see X, I've seen X, like, I don't know, 15 times at this point. And like Billy Zoom will just be like standing there, like having a drink and like people go up to him and he's totally nice and cool, but he's also just hanging out in the foyer in the garden area in Riverside at the, you know, Riverside venue and he's just not taking himself so seriously and I think there's a beauty to that as both a writer and um as a performer I really like to embrace the people like the young writers that come up to me and say hey I really like your work I'm always like oh email me and they think I'm kidding and I always email them back like send me your stuff I want to read it because my whole the reason I do this podcast is because I'm a writer, but I also love to read and I love other writers. And I think if you're a musician and you love other musicians, it's probably the same kind of thing, right? And so let's talk about who's your favorite band. I, I didn't put this in the questions that I oh. sent you, but I want to know who you're, let's, let's do a uh, top three, which is hard. I could do top five, but that's easier. Let's do top three. Of all time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> her, um, because, but here, I'll just try to get, I'm petting my cat who's here crying again. Um, Rush. Okay. Um, because that obviously changed. Oh God, Jim, this is so, this is so mean of I'm you. This sorry, is I'm sorry. Like, but it can change just today. Who's your top three? <laughs> Zeppelin. Oh, nice. Um, and I, oh, God, this is so hard because um, I will say the Foo Fighters are. Oh, they're so good live. Oh, my. Yeah, one of my favorite just. Don't like, ask me about what happened when I got drunk at a Foo Fighters concert in the desert 
right by my house, made my husband leave. And then Joan Jett came on and they did Nirvana songs. Were you at Cal Jam? Yes. No, I was there. I left right before oh, Joan Jett came God. on. I was, it's my one thing where I'm like, total epic fail. Like my husband still talks about it. How could you do that? I mean, I wasn't just, I, he was like, you need to get home. You're like, shit, that, talk about epic, because I think Stone Temple, no, 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 what am I trying to say? Um, Who was there? That There were so many great bands. Was so it Iggy Pop? Um, I don't remember Iggy Pop. I don't remember. Yeah. I think I'm thinking of the Punk Fest, but yeah, the Cal Jam that year was like Foo Fighters, I think... Um, who else was there? I don't remember. But at the very end, they did this whole, you know, how seven Nirvana songs. And then Joan Jett came on. And I was like, oh, my God. That's right by my house, Lori. Like, I'm five minutes away. I could walk. It's Queens like, of the Stone Age. Oh, sorry. I'm just oh, like, Queens of the Stone Age. They were so. Yeah. I love them so. My Eagles of Death Metal, I think, is the, their other companion band they, that they play in. Yeah. And why do I feel like they were there too? Mm -hmm. Because they all did their typical like intermingling of bands mm -hmm. and stuff. And, and they opened for the Pixies at the Palladium before and they were up. I really love that band. I didn't know them until recently, maybe like three or four years back. They're really good too. Classic rock sound. They do mm -hmm. a lot of Bowie covers always, which I love. They always do Moon Age Daydream, which is one of my favorite Bowie songs. Of course. Okay, you know who else? No, no Gallagher was there. Yeah, you're right. It was Liam. Liam. Yeah. No, you're yeah. right. It was Liam. Brothers, correct. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, don't get that messed up. Yeah, uh, we have a question from Cindy, just really quick. Uh, do you still jam with other musicians? Oh yeah, as often as I can. Yeah, and I play still live. So um, last, and when you say jam, like if if I could just get in a room with a couple of musicians and just jam out for a couple of hours, it's like a dream come true, right? Just to do that. Um, but usually all the musicians that I currently play with, if we ever get a chance to jump up on stage and play with each other, we do just, yep. we, it's just, it, there's nothing like that. I call it lustful. Um, and if to just be like, what song are we doing? What key are we in? Let's just do it. Oh yeah. So of course. Wow. Yeah, and I love your guitar playing, your musical voice. Well, we're going to be – I want people to be able to find you. So um, please, everyone, go out and get her memoir. Um, if you didn't win it, um, it's published by um, – I'm trying to find the name of your press. I had it in my notes. Now I can't find it. So you it can is, get – go ahead. on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target – um everywhere good books everywhere really you can even go into indie bookstores and order it but I, amazon's probably the easiest i'll be honest yeah yeah and a bookshop um if you want to go local um you can go to your local for bookshop um and where are you reading next i know recently you read and sang at romance i did have a quick question about whether you've ever thought about doing like a one-hander where you read from your memoir and do some music um, that would be my final question, if you could answer that, and then tell people where you can be found. Both uh, Your website is in the lawyermarkbart.com. That's easy. But where can they see you? What's your upcoming events and uh, and readings, et cetera? You're in L.A., so a lot I'm of in people LA. are local. Yeah, so this Saturday I'm actually doing a show at a coffee shop. I do a lot of coffee shops now because I can do like, what I just played for. I can do more of the acoustic stuff. Um, so that's at Apsara Coffee. That's this Saturday. What's it called? Apsara, A-P-S-A-R-A, -A -A, Apsara Coffee. Um, Where's that at? It's in San Marino. Do you know where San Marino is? Just is that by Pasadena? 
So I'll be there at three o'clock and people can find me on all the social. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, yeah, lauriemarkvart.com. And then my, all, I blog too at lauriemarkvartdiary.com. Um, but if people just Google my name, you'll find me. Um, but yeah, the thing on Amazon too is the book is there as a paperback, also as the hardcover. You can only get it on Amazon as a hardcover and the Kindle but I'm recording the Audible. I don't even know. Oh. No, I'm doing the Audible recording in June. You're doing and your I, own Audible? Did you write that into your contract or did you have to audition for it? No, exactly. No, this, I'm doing my own narrating. It's like mine. Yeah. I'll narrate the whole book. Um, and it will include some intros of me playing guitar, me playing piano. I'm going to include two chapters that I cut from the book that didn't make it. And those wow. Chapters, actually. And then what do you do with the Audible, if you don't mind me asking? I, I We've talked about this before in one of my podcasts. A lot of people, after they record it, they sell the audio rights. Did you already sell your audio rights? Okay, so you're doing it on your own. Interesting. Own. Yeah, I'm going to try to keep as much rights. Well, it's smart because I can control it, but it's also yeah. hard to have a big distributor, right? Yeah. I'm not opposed to a distributor coming on or getting with a big publisher at some point even for audible but mm -hmm. you know and my goal is to get as many books in hands yep possible and sorry i'm shaking the table um but con to continue this topic you and i started with of mental health awareness yeah breaking down the stigma also taking people on a joy ride through music and entertainment and having having fun with it but and then maybe an adaptation. Daisy and the Six did pretty well for Net for uh, Prime. I can yes. see this being um, a limited series. I'm adapting my book right now. My two books. I'm doing a mashup into a limited series um, with the coach that I'm working on. This could really work that way too. I think you have all the hallmarks of either a movie or a limited series. Oh, I thank you. I, I agree too. From your, what, how, what's the saying? From your lips to God's ears. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. I could see it. I, I got to say the whole screenwriting thing is so hard, but I, I find it really challenging and really interesting and a different way of storytelling. And you're clearly a multi-genre creative. And I just, I could even see you on the stage doing this as a like a little one-hand or one-one yeah. show. Okay, um, you said that and now you're echoing with somebody else. It told me straight up too. This needs to be like a one woman show. I'm like, wow, that would be pretty cool. That that would be intense to put together. But how cool would it be? Because it does span so much time. That is not just about me, but it's about those time, those places that you had spoke about that um, people have been and they've experienced from music scenes to towns and cities and and all of that. So yes. Thank you for that. Well, and you have the added um, the added luxury of you're a musician yourself, and this would be your own material that you already own the rights to because, as you know, trying to get the rights to other people's songs is very expensive both to use in a book. That's why a lot of people recreate lyrics and just use song titles that can't be copyrighted. And then um, you could do your own songs as part of the one-woman show. I've thought about doing a one-woman show, but I would have to get the rights to songs by Go-Go's. It'd be really expensive. So I think you should do this. I mean, you could even start at your little coffee shop scene, almost like a comedian works up 10 minutes. You could do one story. I really, 
We've been doing, Alan Kalachi was on earlier, and maybe you could read with us one day. We do these readings in San Dimas at a brewery called Last Chance Brewery in San Dimas. It's kind of at the apex of the IE in LA. And what we've been doing um, more recently is building in music into sets. So like I read a Wizard of Oz piece and I had my friend Eric Ulagi come in with with, um, Over the Rainbow at the end on a ukulele. um, Or one time I did a song, I did a story that had a Smith song in it and he did Smith at the end. I like that idea of someone reading, trailing off into the song. When done well, it is one of the most, most sublime things I've ever seen. Well, now you need to say something like Bob Dylan. Now, but okay, now I'm gonna go play Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously, right? So, oh. um, <laughs> should I? Do I need to do that? Yeah, I think you need to do it. I'll just do. I'll do a little Dylan. Yeah, let's do a little Dylan. You probably- can go over. It's eight oh five. We'll go to eight ten. Um, and then I just want to tell everyone just really quick before you do your Bob Dylan to take us out. Please get her book somewhere in the music. I'll find me. Also, watch our next podcast in two weeks. I'm taking a week break. I have Ruth Nolan on, who um, is a professor in uh, Palm Springs who wrote um, Under the Dome. Um, So um, her book is through Bamboo Dart, um, Before the Dome Fire uh, by Ruth Nolan. She'll be on May 10th. So uh, everyone check out Lori on her website. She'll be this Saturday. I put it in there um, at a, a coffee shop in San Marino. I'll put that on my webpage too. And Lori, lead us out with this Bob Dylan song. You know, I mean, can I play these songs on your po- podcast without you getting kicked off? Oh, that's a good you? question. Yeah, hmm. no. Hmm. 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 Me before with some stuff I've done. Yeah, yeah. Well, play another of your tunes then. Let's do it that way. Yeah, that made me nervous. I'm like, ooh, because that happens. I put, you know what? I put this song out on social media all over the place. And I've never been told, like, to take it down. Interesting. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, Amnesty will do it. And you know what? You can cut it out. You can get okay, rid of it. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 But Adele, Adele did this song. I'm trying to think who else has done it. A lot of people have done this. But Gotta Love, some Bob Dylan. What a songwriter. What a songwriter. My neighbors are gonna hate me though. They're like shut singer like sandpaper, but I love his voice. It's it's unique. It is.
in my mind where you belong. I go hungry, I go black and blue. And I go crawling down the avenue. Oh, there's nothing I wouldn't do to make you feel my renditions of that song I'm I, that's one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs one of my favorite songs so thank you for that Lori oh, oh, thank you for letting so me do it thank you please oh. everyone get Lori's book um and we'll talk after in the green room Lori but we're gonna say bye now to everyone thank you for watching like I said in two weeks come on May 10th Ruth Nolan and after that on May 17th I have Alan's brother, Dennis Kalachian, who just wrote a book as well. His, he has three books, but it's his latest. So bye, everyone. Have a great day. See you soon. Oh, and uh, for everyone that lives in Riverside, there is the Tortilla, uh, the Tamale Festival this weekend, Saturday. Um, if you like tamales, it's at the uh, park in Riverside. Just go to the Inlandia page for more information on that. And go see Lori this Saturday in San Marino. I'm going to put the name of the coffee shop on my page. She's performing in Pasadena this Saturday at 3 p.m. Bye, everyone. Bye.